Welcome to What She Said. My name is Candace Sampson, and when I first took over What She Said in January 2020, I jokingly asked in the intro, what could possibly go wrong? And then 2020 said, let me show you. My life has been a country song ever since, but then again, so is everyone else's right now. Thankfully, through this podcast, I get to meet the most amazing women in Canada and around the globe and share their stories with you. What She Said is here to talk about anything and everything under the sun as interpreted by and through the perspective of women. Because honestly, we've heard what he said for long enough. If you like what you hear, be sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. Today's show is coming right up. I first heard of my next guest when I read a Huffington Post article about his fears raising black sons during this time. It quickly became apparent though, that it's not just the systemic racism of being black that Avi deals with on a daily basis, but that he is living with all the isms. Seriously, almost everyone. Trans, black, Jewish, in an interracial relationship, married to a gay woman, adoptive parent to two children with developmental hurdles in the form of fetal alcohol syndrome and autism. Honestly, some days my day can be derailed if it's raining. Reading this story, I just had to know more about him and how he gets through the day with so much external pressure and sadly, hatred thrown his way. As it turns out, with a great deal of empathy and a calling to teach others how to treat LGBTQ kids with kindness and equality. Meet Avi Magdasson. Hi, Avi. How are you today? Not too bad, Candice. It's great to be here. I am so happy you joined me because I have to tell you, I read the article in the HuffPo and I was reading it with fascination. I mean, we are all uh, consumed with Black Lives Matter right now. Right. And so I started reading your article, uh, you know, about your, your sons and then, oh, he's Jewish. Oh, he's trans. Oh, his wife is gay. Oh, and it was on and on and on. And it was really like you were ticking off a lot of boxes for marginalized communities, essentially. It's true. I'm a one-stop shop. <laughs> right. And so all that, all that kept coming into my mind the entire time I was reading this article was, how are you doing it? Yeah. You know, I actually think that they each inform the other. So... Um, certainly growing up as a black kid, you know, that gives you a pretty good foundation for hard stuff, right? Lots of good stuff, but lots of hard stuff. Um, and, you know, when I came out as a lesbian at the time, I mean, I knew when I was very, very little, um, you know, I, my mom was not happy with it. So it was about dealing with that as well. Um, my mom was very Christian. So converting to Judaism was a hardship for her. So, you know, there, there was just all these things that for me became very clear. Um, if I wasn't living my life as authentically as I could, um, I wasn't happy, right? I wasn't healthy. I wasn't happy. Um, so certainly when it came to coming out as trans, which really was just I'm going to, I think it was about five years ago. So I'm going to be 56 this year. Um, so that was something that happened very late in life. Um, and I have to say that felt like the easiest thing <laughs> compared to the other things, right? 
Um, because I think I'd had that experience of there comes a time where, you know, you look in the mirror and you're like, who is that person and what do I need to do for that person to be their best self? And sometimes those decisions are hard and yep, sometimes you lose people, but you gain a whole bunch of other people. Can we talk about being trans for a second? Because um, I did an interview uh, way back in January with um, Amanda Jete Knox and her wife, Zoe Knox. Zoe came out as trans uh, late in life as well. They were married. Uh, And and Amanda wrote a book, Love Lives Here. I don't Mm. know if you're familiar with it, but basically is that Zoe knew always Right. Did you always know or did you feel that perhaps like you, because you said you were lesbian. So I, you knew that in your heart for a long time. Yes. So yeah, I don't have that story of like from the time I was young, feeling like I was in the wrong, like encasement. Like I didn't have that experience. Um, There were things about being female that I really loved. I tried very hard to get pregnant for many years because I really wanted that experience. Um, when we weren't able to do that, when I wasn't able to do that and we adopted, I looked up how to induce lactation so I could nurse the boy, my sons when they came home. Um, I was always a very butch lesbian. Um, and I think as I got older, um, as I explained it to my kids when we were telling them about being trans, it said, it's like I had a favorite pair of shoes and I wore the shoes for a long time and the shoes fit, but then they started to feel uncomfortable. And, you know, I just walked around in uncomfortable shoes for a while. And then one day I thought, wait a minute, I should just get new shoes. And so that's how I explained it to the kids. And that's really what it felt like. Um, I just, like, the skin I was in, the body I was in, just didn't feel like it fit anymore. And was there a moment or a catalyst that took you to this moment of, of, of saying, you know what, this is not who I am? There definitely was a catalyst. So as I talked earlier about my mom, um, when my mom died and I had, like we had finished all the things that come along with someone dying and I didn't have to be someone's daughter anymore. And, you know, I had been her caregiver for a long time. Um, I have an older brother, but he was in Calgary. And I think I had this moment of, okay, I don't have to be someone's daughter. So who, do, who am I? Who do I want to be? And like almost instantaneously, it was like, I want to be male. And was that a a wonderfully liberating moment for you? It was. I mean, it was wonderfully liberating in my head. It was Mm -hmm. terrifying to think about talking to my partner who we, at that point, we had been together for, I don't know, 14, 15 years. So, you know, that was scary because I didn't know, I, I know her lesbian identity is very, very important to her. And I'd read all the stories about people who break up. Um, So that was scary. Um, But I don't think she was shocked. So, you know, but it took work because, you know, you have to reconfigure your life and how the world sees you and what that means. So. So at that time then, so you, you're now, uh, you, you've come out to your partner, yeah. uh, you're still together, so I'm assuming yeah. there is, there's yeah. a happy ending in here, uh, so we won't, nobody will be surprised by that. Yeah. Now, did you have young children at this point? Had you adopted yet? Yes, we had. So at the time, the boys were, 
I'm going to say like eight and five. Um, so, and so that was difficult because um, they also have some special needs. So I didn't know how much they would understand. Um, but we told them, we had this conversation about brains and how everyone's brain looks differently. And we drew pictures of our brains. And so in that exercise, I put a little figure in my brain that said, hi, I'm Avi. And so my son's like, who's that? (laughs) I explain like, this is who, you know, as I thought about it, this is who I knew that I wanted to be from now on. And, um, and you know what, they were pretty phenomenal. They were, the little one was like, oh, okay. And switched over really quickly, called me Papa really quickly. Uh, The older one had a harder time because he and I had, were so bonded. Um, and I was his mama, so that was going to be really hard. But he seemed really fine. And then a few months later, it was his birthday, and he just broke down that night and was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I was like, what's wrong? What's going And he wouldn't talk to me. So he told my partner that he wanted his mama to be at his party, not Avi. And so we helped him understand, like, I'm the same person. Like, I'm the person who breastfed you I'm the person who you barfed on like I'm still that person and I think once he understood that he was like my biggest cheerleader so they've both done really well so tell me then okay if we can back up a little bit then to the adoption process because I think that I wonder if people in Canada specifically are wondering about the adoption process. For example, I had somebody who did a surrogacy show with me recently mm-hmm. who shared that surrogates can't be paid in Canada. I did not know right. this. Yeah. Uh, so, and so I think, you know, we, we watch American television, we consume right. <laughs> American media all the time. Yeah. Maybe there are some differences here that people are unaware of when it comes to, you know, um, people in the LGBT community adopting. So, did you have hurdles? What, what were you sort of looking at when it came to that process? So, I mean, for me, I really wanted to adopt the youngest as possible because of the wanting to nurse. Um, so, you know, we looked at all the different ways. So international adoption was not going to be possible because many countries would not allow um, LGBT people to adopt in those countries. Like, that's just a no-go. Um, private adoption. Um, was a possibility, except uh, many of the private adoption agencies in the U.S. are also very Christian-based. So that wasn't going to be a possibility. And, I mean, the reality is we also knew that lots of kids in Canada and Toronto are in foster care and need homes. So we were quite fine to go with public adoption. Um, And I guess, so this was 2005 that we started the adoption process. And I guess things had changed at CAS because in our group, they do uh, training for potential adoptive parents. And there were three or four queer couples of various stripes and hues. Um, So we weren't the only ones there. Um, And CAS had begun really working hard at making sure that um, it was not an onerous process. Because I'd heard the horror stories of, you know, queer families getting the hardest kids um, or having to wait longer than everybody else. Or, you know, they give you this list of what can you handle? What can't you handle? And people taking kids because they wanted kids so badly that were, you know, overwhelming to them. Um, it, it helped that 
I'm a social worker. My partner was a therapist, had that training. So um, we knew how to talk to the system, right? We knew how to say the things. Um, we're an interracial couple. So that opened a lot of doors as well. Um, we have worked with kids who have had, well, I've worked with kids who've had lots of abuse issues. My partner could sign so we could, you know, take a child who was deaf. So, I mean, we were pretty well placed in terms of getting, you know, like being able to advocate for ourselves. But I do think, like I think of some of our single queer friends who adopted and, you know, I think the feeling is, well, that's good. We can put some kids who are like a bit more difficult with this person because it's just them and the kid and they'll be able to give them a lot of attention. But I think it also means that you're asking this individual person to, who has no other supports necessarily to be with a child that can be really um, a lot of work 24-7. So um, I think it's getting better. I hope it's getting better. Um, you know, I've worked, I've done some work with CAS around through my job at this school board, um, how to train child welfare workers around LGBTQ issues. So now people come in and get the training, like before they even start working with families, they're getting trained. So hopefully that will make things a bit easier and more queer people are becoming um, CAS workers. So that also helps as well. Right, because, you know, it helps when you have people actually, uh, you know, placing people who understand they're coming from that place as well. Yeah. So, okay. So you have been in an interracial relationship for 20 years, uh, black, uh, you know, uh, gay. So let's, let's fast forward to this moment in time then the black okay. lives matter moment, because this is, uh, you know, I feel, uh, my favorite author of Malcolm Gladwell. I do feel we're at a tipping point. I hope so. My, my hope is that we are at a tipping point. Yeah. What does that mean for you raising two young black sons? So it's terrifying. You know, before I transitioned, I had my moments where, you know, police would slow down as I was walking by or, you know, I got stopped because I looked like someone they were looking for. Um, and it's funny, when I transitioned, I didn't actually think oh, now I'm going to be out in the world as a black man. Like, I don't know why that hadn't occurred to me in terms of, oh, and that means the police watch you more. Um, but, you know, I have kids who are now 10 and 13. And so they're getting to that stage where they're noticed, right? And when they're hanging out with a group of friends, it doesn't look the same as when they were hanging out with friends when they were five or six, right? Um, and... You know, the 13-year-old has hormones happening and he's on the autism spectrum. So he's going to be someone who likely will come in contact with the police. And his reaction will not be one that is, um, like he could be seen as being non-compliant or being aggressive because he will be overwhelmed and scared and he will run. So we have lots of the conversations, but it's terrifying because I don't know what will happen in that moment. Right. I don't know. Right now he still looks little, but in, you know, in two years he could look like a man. And if he does that, then what's going to happen. Right. And my 10 year old, he has fetal alcohol syndrome and he's going to tell that cop exactly where to go and how to get there. And I'm like, dude, you can't do that. But he doesn't understand that. and He won't remember that in the moment. So right. it's, it's terrifying. Right. Um, 
you know, and for my partner, it's even more terrifying because she says every time the three of you go out, I don't know if you're coming back. Right. And when I leave the house every day, I think, am I going to come home? And I don't know because lots of those people who went out that morning assume who ended up killed by the police, they thought they were coming home that night. Right. They went to get something from the store that like, so it's terrifying. Um, and I don't know how to balance teaching my sons to advocate for themselves and teach them that if they get, come into contact with the police, they just have to take it. Like you just, if they're rude, if they're, you know, like not very nice, you just have to take it so you can survive. Right. So it's, it's a hard. And I think, I think that's the heartbreaking thing that I hope a lot of white people are listening to right now is that these are conversations we've never had to have with our children about how to behave when you, you know, come in, in contact with a police officer. Uh, you know, and these are conversations you shouldn't have to have with your children. So do you feel right now? And, uh, you know, because uh, black lives matter really has been, you know, um, you know, it's been around for a while, but obviously it's been in the news for a few, few weeks uh, mm-hmm. at a very amplified level. Right. And what I am noticing recently, and I don't know if, you, you know, if this is top of mind for you, but it seems like uh, the people with the most hate seem to be coming out even more so right, right now. There's a little bit of a pushback from that community. You know, there's been yeah. some hateful things dropped in mailboxes in Kitchener, Waterloo, and... Uh, people posting signs in Toronto uh, about not apologizing for apologizing for being white. Right. I mean, there's a definite, uh, but I, I feel I don't know. I, I want your your feelings on this. Do you feel that these are just a few outspoken loud people and they'll go away? I, I'm wondering what you think. I think that in the last few years. Um, you know, the alt-right, the people who maybe would have kept that stuff in their, in their head have gotten a lot of permission from powerful people to say those things out loud. And no, we're not the U.S., but, you know, that stuff was happening in Canada for a long time. And now it's okay because if the president can say it, if this, you know, MPP can say it if, you know, I'm just voicing my opinion and I, I'm fearful because I feel like um, the things that kept people quiet are not happening anymore, right? Like there's not that, oh, I shouldn't say that out loud. Like the other day I was in my house and I could hear someone talking about, oh my God, you can't say anything anymore. You can't say all lives matter. And this person was just ranting about how like these black people and these brown people, and I'm looking out and it was like someone who lives like in my neighborhood. So I went and sat on my porch and just watched him and he was completely emboldened. Like he, like he didn't even pause when he saw that I was sitting there and I'm like, wow, that's what we've come to. Right? Like, I have a right to my opinion. I have a right to say what I want to say. Um, and I, I worry because I think the things that would have put limits on that don't exist in the same way. And I, I worry that things are going to blow up in a really awful way. So a friend of mine and I were having this discussion about really, because it's, it's on white people to change this. It's, it's our problem to change. Uh, so, you know, we were having this discussion about, 
you know, maybe it's a question of as a white person, you have to have practice what your response will be to people who right. come out with those things, right? Um, do you have any um, suggestions right now for people uh, for, you know, how we can move forward? How, you know, it's such a big issue. How do we tackle systemic racism? Right. Um, you know, even I would think in CAS, that is an issue, mm -hmm. systemic racism. Point. Yeah. Like the number of kids of color and indigenous kids who are in care far outweigh the number, those numbers in the population. Um, you know, when people say like, you know, I don't know what to do or, and I'm like, have the uncomfortable conversation, like have it around the dinner table with, you know, your uncle who always says that thing and everybody kind of sits there and then, you know, the conversation, it's like challenge that because do it in the comfort of your home and of your family um, before you have to do it outside. Um, do it with coworkers, do it with colleagues, do it with your kids. Cause I have to say, you know, some of the things like I've dealt with my son and some of the things his friends post on Instagram and the language they're using, I'm like, that's not okay. He said, but they're joking. I'm like, nope, it's not, no. okay. it's not a joke. And I don't let him listen to music that has that language. He said, but they're black artists. I'm like, I don't care. Cause if people hear you listening to it or hear you using their lang that language, white people think it gives them permission to do it. And yeah, so can, we, can we talk about that for a second? I'd like to talk about that for a second because, you know, these songs, you know, uh, they come on the radio or, you know, you hear them popular music and you're singing along because you like it, yeah. you know, and that word, and we all know what that word is, comes up and I just automatically, I skip over it. It, right. it makes me very uncomfortable and I skip right. over it. Is, what is the feeling in the black community about that word? Is I mean, it split, divided? Is it a, because I've heard that it's empowering, you know, right. because it's like the word bitch, right? right. If a man calls me bitch. Oh, no, 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 no. Right. But if my girlfriend says, hey, bitch, let's get together. I'm like, that's great. <laughs> right. Right. And I think different people can reclaim different words, right? Um, but that word, and I've talked to my sons about the history of that word, right? And like, how do you reclaim, you don't reclaim words that are steeped in so much hate, and hurt to your community. And I can't talk about what, you know, this artist does or because some black people are fine with it, but I'm not. So in our house and in the circle of people that we hang out with, I'm like, that's not okay. Except, you know, my son's going to high school next year. So I can't control that. Um, but I work in schools and when I'm in hallways and I hear language because part of what I do is a lot around sexual and gender diversity. So if I hear homophobic or transphobic language or racist language, I'll just stop in the hallway and I'll be like, no, that's not okay. And this is why, you know, and they don't know who I am and I walk away and they're probably like, well, who the hell does he think he is? But I don't care. Cause I can't like, they need to see that some adults are saying that, no, this is not okay. Right. And when I've done groups with black kids, I talk about, you know, they're like, but we, but it, like we're just joking and between us it's okay and I talk about but when you're doing it other people hear it and think that they have a right to do it right and why like and we talk about the history of words and how they've been used so you know right and very powerful yeah yeah you know I remember being in grade nine and reading Huckleberry Finn and my teacher like I think I was one of maybe three kids in the class and like we were reading aloud and my teacher wanted me to read 
he said, okay, so now you read, but it was the passage where that word was. And I'm like, okay, A, I'm not going to read it. And B, why would you choose me to do it? Like, what was that about? Right. And it's things like that. That's a microaggression, you know, that. So, yeah. So, you know, it's funny because my daughter uh, this year was reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. And the teacher kept saying that word because it was in the book. Right. And, you know, my, my issue was, well, I don't think you have to say the word. No. I just don't think you do. No. And if you have black kids in that room, what, what's happening to them? Like, and I don't think that's what people get. Like when, when I hear that word, it's not just like, Ugh, there's that word. It's like a physical feeling, like it, it engenders fear. And it's almost like there's a cellular memory about that word. And so, you know, what's it doing to those kids in that classroom who this person who is an authority and they're supposed to respect and look up to is using this word? Like that's, that's not okay. If a student used that word in a hallway, they could get in trouble, but a teacher can do it. Like, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I think the last thing we need to focus on is what you do for a living. Okay. Because really you're so perfectly suited for what you do. It is lots of fun. So I work with the Toronto district school board and I'm a social worker in a program called the Gender-Based Violence Prevention Program. Um, so it's myself and a colleague, Alana David, and the bulk of what we do is professional development with staff around sexual and gender diversity. So we talk about, you know, how to support LGBT students. We talk about how to accommodate trans students. So like on overnight trips and bathroom issues and gym classes. Um, We talk about power dynamics. We kind of go through like, because a lot of teachers don't know the difference between gender identity and gender expression and, you know, assigned sex at birth. So we talk about those things um, because we want them to have a basis of knowledge when they're in the classroom. So this is a full day training that staff take. Um, We also do a group called the gig group, which is the gender independent group. So it's a group for families with kids in JK to grade seven who identify as transgender, gender non-conform, well, uh, gender creative or non-binary. So I facilitate the kids group, which is so much fun. Um, And you know, like we have this group and sometimes Kids will come to the group and for the first time, they're able to dress the way they want or use the pronouns that they want. And it's a really great safe space for them. And then the parents have like some education that happens with Alana. Um, And we also are social work support for the Triangle Program, which is Canada's only LGBTQ high school. And so we support students there and it's phenomenal. It's like an amazing group of young people and you know, we just had our grad the other day and seven students graduated. Like, it's, I, I love being able to do that training and I love being professionally queer. And, you know, I remember when I told my partner um, I was trans, she did say, like, are you going to be stealth? Like, are you going to kind of just be in the world and be a man and no one's going to know that you're trans? And I said, no, like, that's not who I want to be. Um, I have no argument with people who want to do that. And I understand many of the reasons why I said, but you know, 
when I was a lesbian, I needed black kids to know I was a lesbian because they weren't seeing that anywhere. And I need people to know that there are black trans men, like, because people don't see that really. You know, I grew up thinking, oh, that gay thing is a white thing. Like, that's what I was told. Um, so I think it's, it's important for me to be really visible and be really out there um, because young people, and not even young people, people need to know you can be 51 and be like, oh, I can do this, right? Like, that's pretty powerful. Well, I think you're pretty powerful. I think you are coming at this from just, uh, I've got, my eyes are all teary. <laughs> you are coming at this from so many angles that your life story, the culmination of your life story and all the different things that you've been through and all of the ways your life intersects mm -hmm. makes you so wonderfully in tune for the people that need you. Right. you. You must bring a great empathy to this role. Well, I think that, you know, because I love what I do and I've gone to the point where I love who I am, it's very easy to come at what I do from that place, right? So, so where does this program that you do right now, where is this going in a, you know, post-COVID world? Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> we have no idea what, you know, the school year is going to look like next year. Um, we've been meeting with students online. We're going to try and figure out how to do the trainings online if that's what needs to be. Um, because it's, it's necessary. Like it's 2020 and I'm always so surprised that we still need all of this. But, you know, the stories we hear from families and from kids of the experiences they're having in schools tells me we still need some, we need lots and lots of work. Still. Right. Well, my fear is that, you know, as you were talking, it's you and one other person for an entire school board, yeah. uh, you know, and obviously th that's a lot of kids that yeah. need your help. And obviously in a situation like this, you know, as things start to get prioritized, my fear is that you will not get the attention you need. Yeah, uh, that's always a fear. <laughs> Right, right. And, and, and that needs to be top of mind for people. So I guess what I'm going to say here is, you know, as we wrap up this podcast, is if people want to know more, have this be a bigger focus, are there people they can write to, people they can talk to? Who would you suggest they, they reach out to? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, if it was in terms of the school board, I think it's always important to talk to the, um, you know, I always say start at the top and work your way down to say like, this is important. These, this, this is a valuable program or, you know, I see the need for this. So, you know, whether it's the director of education or if it's the person who's in charge of human rights and equity, like I think, I think that's the thing. Like Alana and I do our job and we do it very well. Um, but it's very not seen, right? Because we just go in and do our job and we support our students. Um, but it's always a worry that, you know, other things will become more, not more important, but there's that balancing of, okay, so the focus is going to be anti-black racism, but what about these queer kids, right? Mm -hmm. What about these black queer kids and these black trans kids? Like, how do we work together instead of asking people to isolate parts of their identity? and only serving one part of their identity. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of, you know, white parents will be listening to this going, well, not my kid. So, I mean, my challenge to those parents would be, well, it is your kid. 
it is your society you're putting them in. And it's up to us to make sure that the society is fair and balanced. It benefits all of our kids, right? So it is my concern. Yeah. And the reality is, like I say to parents, you need to talk to your kids because they're bullying our kids, right? Like, so that's where the work has to happen, where they know in their family that that is not okay. Then we aren't dealing with them doing it at school, right? So, yeah. Okay. Well, Avi, thank you so much for joining me today. Your story is just incredible and you're just absolutely inspiring. So thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.